I'm going to do this. I'm going to run for the United States Senate. The time is now for fresh ideas and new leadership. I'm running for student council because of you and for you. That is why I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for president. Welcome to the Arena Talks podcast, where we interview emerging political leaders from across the country. Today, we talk to my good friend, Representative Greg Meyer, who is a Democratic member of the North Carolina General Assembly. He represents the 50th District, which includes parts of Orange and Durham counties. He is a tireless advocate for improving the lives of North Carolinians. We first met him when he took a huge leadership role in helping us run the second Arena Summit in Raleigh, North Carolina last spring. And we're lucky to have him on the podcast. So let's jump right in. All right, Greg, welcome to the Arena Talks podcast. Hi, Ravi. Thanks for having me. So, Greg, how did you get into politics? Uh, I'm a social worker by training, and I spent my whole career in social work working in public schools, mostly on college access. And in 2010 and 2012, um, North Carolina took a swing to the right. We kind of had our uh, Tea Party Trump revolution before it caught up with Washington. And one of the first things that the Republicans did here in North Carolina was to really make some major attacks on public schools, as well as all kinds of public supports for the families that I was trying to support and helping their kids go to school and go to college. And so I was really motivated to run to, to be a voice of someone who was working in public schools who could go to the legislature and fight for public schools and the kids and families that they serve. Uh, and that was kind of my initial one issue campaign. And uh, lucky that luckily that was enough to get me in. And Greg, where'd you where'd you grow up? I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. I grew up in a, a blue collar neighborhood. Um, I ended up having the very fortunate opportunity to to get out of that neighborhood and go to college. And when I looked back, I kind of realized like, huh, I had a lot of privileges that some of my peers didn't. Uh, and they got me here. And uh, most of my friends from growing up um, are still back there and they're working and they could have easily been in college too if they would have just had some of the opportunities that I had. And that's a lot of the reason why I went into social work and, and ended up working on helping kids go to college because I didn't want to see a uh, lost potential like, like so many of my friends from, uh, from my home neighborhood. Yeah. So talk more about that. What drew you to North Carolina? Uh, my wife and I moved to North Carolina by choice in part because we wanted to get away from the cold of Ohio um, but also at the time that we moved and it's, here, and it's football teams, <laughs> <laughs> yes, correct, and, and all of its losing sports teams. Um, but the time that we moved here, North Carolina was on the cutting edge of uh, advances in public education, and we were both going to go into public education for our careers. So we were really drawn by a state that was leading with good public education policy work. And, um, as, you know, it's part of why, uh, you know, it was about 15 years later that I entered politics of, of the tables had turned so dramatically. North Carolina had fallen so far behind the cutting edge um, that I just really wanted to, to jump in and get involved. Well, and, and now you're an elected official and you've been on the cutting edge of, you know, taking initiative to recruit as many people as possible to run and to fight back against, you know, some incursions in the state, which we'll get to. But just walk us through for a lot of people who are part of the arena community want to run for office one day. Uh, and I think are sometimes uh, a little bit worried about uh, some of the dynamics of both running and raising money, but then also uh, the time demands it means to be uh, an elected official. So walk us through what's it what's a day in the life um, of an elected representative in North Carolina? 
Well, our legislature is a part-time legislature, just like most elected officials' jobs are part-time jobs. So I have to juggle my responsibilities as a legislator with my role for my campaign, you know, raising money, talking to voters, uh, like you talked about, as well as I run an educational consulting business now because I've got to have some income to keep my family afloat. So um, my wife says I have three three-quarter time jobs, those three things. And unfortunately, they too often all come before family. Um, but, you know, I'm, I think that anybody who gets into public service, whether it's teaching, social work, elected office, you understand that you're going to sacrifice some personal things for the good of the community. Um, and, you know, our family has just had to get used to the ebb and flow of what uh, what happens over the course of a legislative year when we're in session, when we're out of session, when I'm more likely to be working, when I'm more likely to be at the Capitol, things like that. But the one thing, you know, you say, what's an average day like? Like there is no average day because um, political work, whether it's on the campaign side or on the policy side, covers so many different responsibilities. Uh, one of my favorite things about it is that even though I got in just on an education platform, um, I have work on all kinds of issues. Uh, this morning, I spent half a day working on energy policy. It's something that I knew nothing about four years ago, but now I'm really fascinated about it and how we can really create progressive energy policy that uh, relieves some of the the expense burden on low-income families. And tell us what it's like, you know, you're in the minority uh, in a state where it seems like uh, the majority has very little interest in collaborating. Um, what uh, What is the sort of ebb and flow from a policy perspective and activism perspective of an elected uh, member in the minority in North Carolina? Yeah, I've been very frustrated in the legislature because uh, the Republicans here have a supermajority and um, they are very punitive uh, in a lot of ways towards anyone that challenges their authority. And I'm not willing to give up my values just to play a game with them. I have a few Republicans that I work well with on specific issues, but overall I know that to, to advance the major policy objectives that I want to see for the people that I care about, I need power. Politics is a game of power. And so it took me about a year to realize that if I wanted to be able to do what I got into the legislature to do, I really had to put a lot of effort into the political side to help Democrats win back power in the House of Representatives. And so I, that's what I've been doing. I've, I've uh, built up my fundraising prowess to be one of the top fundraisers in the caucus. Um, I have been the recruitment chair uh, for two cycles and trying to find new candidates to run. Uh, and so, you know, by kind of contributing in those ways, I've been able to build up my status within the House Democratic Caucus. Uh, and I hope that all of that pays off and us being able to take back the chamber. And then maybe I'll have the authority of being, you know, something like an appropriations chair where I can actually make a difference for, for people. And so give us the numbers. What what are the numbers right now uh, for Dems and Republicans uh, in the North Carolina House and Senate? In North Carolina House, where I serve, there are 75 Republicans and uh, 45 Democrats. In the North Carolina Senate, there are 35 Republicans and 15 Democrats. So Republicans hold supermajorities in both chambers, uh, in large part because of the extremely crafty gerrymanders that they drew in 2011 after they took control in 2010. And uh, there, those gerrymandered legislative maps have been ruled unconstitutional uh, by the Supreme Court, just as our congressional maps have, and uh, as well as some 
local election maps uh, that the, that this re- these Republicans have drawn. So we're under a burden because of their cheating. And so, you know, when we hear numbers like that, you know, 75 of 120 and, and 35 of 50 uh, Republican representation. And then we square that with the historic presidential performance, which seems nearly dead even uh, in each of the last few presidential cycles. There's a huge gap there. Is this one of the worst gerrymandered states in the country? Yeah, I think people do consider North Carolina to be one of the worst gerrymanders. And, and you're exactly right. North Carolina uh, at this point is about the close, most closely divided state on presidential elections. And, uh, you know, we went for Obama by the, by the closest margin in 08. Obama lost here in 12 by, I think, the second closest margin. And I know we weren't one of the closest on, in the 2016 elections, but it's just almost a 50-50 divide. So, yeah. you know, the fact that the Republicans have uh, about two-thirds of the power in a 50-50 state just shows you what gerrymandering does. Yeah, and it's, it might even be stronger than that. Gallup just came out with a, a state-by-state summary from 2017, and, and Peg's party affiliation in North Carolina is plus five Dem right now. And so this will be a real test. Yeah, well, 2018, we've got a lot of things that are changing and, and opportunity for uh, Democrats to take back control. So the courts have ruled the maps unconstitutional, so we're going to have slightly better maps to run on. The the unconstitutionality was based on racial gerrymandering. The new maps are still partisan gerrymanders, but they're slightly better for us. Uh, and then, of course, you know, we've got the resistance and we've got uh, the energy that, that right now is out there for uh, progressives to push back at all levels. And it's a blue moon election here where we don't have any statewide elections, no Senate race on the ballot, which means there's going to be a lot of attention on congressional and legislative races but turnout will be down because there's no big statewide race. And so candidates who run an amazing campaign and build a lot of grassroots support in their communities have a much better chance to upset incumbents in a blue moon election like 2018 than they would in a major presidential year. And so there are actually two different, correct me if I'm wrong, um, court cases involving gerrymandering in North Carolina, right? Correct. The legislative case that impacts my districts, um, we've won based on uh, racial gerrymandering, and uh, and we'll have new maps in 2018 because of that. The congressional case is actually two years ahead. Um, it was decided earlier, and there were new maps that were drawn in 2016 because of the original racial gerrymander. Those 2016 maps were then ruled to be unconstitutional based on partisan grounds uh, in in 2017, and so that uh, meant that. The, that Well, that case ended up getting appealed then to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court stayed that case because they're hearing the Wisconsin and the Maryland cases on uh, partisan gerrymandering. But if, if the Supreme Court's consideration of partisan gerrymandering ends up with putting some restrictions on that practice, then in here in North Carolina, both the congressional and legislative maps will need to be redrawn. Wow. So for folks who don't know how this works, how... Does one go about creating maps that are that anti-democratic? Like, are these people in a room? Are they, you know, computer scientists using analytical tools? Um, How do you get those maps? Yeah, I mean, basically, the Republicans here contracted out to a guy who was a map making expert um, who figured out to draw districts that were uh, the right size in terms of number of people 
but were the the court here said that they were drawn with surgical precision uh, to disenfranchise black voters. So that would be by packing lots of black voters into some districts and excluding as many black voters as possible from other districts. That's the racial gerrymandering part of it. I'll give you an example. My district was drawn around several of the unconstitutional districts that were racial gerrymanders. Those districts got packed full of black voters. That left my district with very few black voters in it. I actually have one of the whitest districts held by a Democrat in the state. In order to do that, my district spreads um, in, a, in just across two counties, it spreads in a way that would cause me to drive uh, about an hour and a half to two hours to be able to cover my district. So it's one of the, the when you think about gerrymandering, mine is sprawled. What's more striking to me, though, is the way is in which that they will carve up communities. So, for instance, um, the local board of elections told me, they said, yeah, when your new district lines were drawn, we had to go to this apartment building to figure out where the line went through the apartment building so we could tell people where to vote. And we found out it actually went through an apartment and we had to figure out where their bedroom was so we could tell them which oh district God. they were in. And so this isn't, <laughs> this isn't some kind of uh, plan that was you know hatched out of nowhere by folks in North Carolina. Um, this is something that we're seeing around the country. North Carolina seems to be a particularly effective version of this. And we, you know, one thing we, we study as a community is the, the Coke network and there's some guy down in North Carolina uh, who I think is, he's been dubbed the third Coke brother, um, this guy Art Pope. Um, what's going on with the sort of the, the right wing money machine in North Carolina right now? So Art Pope, yeah, he's he's North Carolina's uh, Coke brother. Um, if you've read the, money, the book Dark Money, there's a whole chapter about the Pope Network and what they did in North Carolina and how they won in, t- in 2010. And uh, there's also a great book, Rat Fucked, um, which talks about Project, Project Red Map. So the Koch network, including Art Pope here, spent a lot of time and money trying to win state legislatures by 2010 so that then they could use their brand new computer skills uh, to, to put in place these gerrymandered maps when constitutional redistricting was required in 2011. And so Pope financed their election victories um, leading up to 2010, uh, the Republicans swept into power. Uh, they used this guy who had been in the Koch network, um, who was figuring out how to mastermind maps to draw the new maps. And uh, they locked in power for themselves for several years. I mean, it takes a long time for these things to go through the courts. So here we are heading into 2018, and we're just getting relief from the courts. And so beyond redistricting, walk us through some of the elements of this network, because it involves legislation, it involves um, persuasion, it involves opposition research, right? Um, what have you seen on the ground in the legislature um, in terms of what the, the right wing machine, the different components of the right wing machine and what they've been able to do? Well, we're one of the states where Alec has had a lot of operatives. And so, you know, the, the Coke money that funds the policy development machine um, and then pulls people together and says, OK, here's what we're going to do, for instance, on the tax plan. Um, the, the Trump tax plan that everybody has seen go into place through Congress this year is basically something that North Carolina passed over the last few years. And all of that tax plan was generated out of the Koch brothers network through the policy people at ALEC and then piloted here in North Carolina. Uh, we have also seen... Um, uh, uh, there's been a lot of talk this year about the attacks of the Trump administration on science. Uh, 
So in 2000 and I think it was 2013, after Republicans took over here, they literally outlawed science when they passed a bill that said that the state could no longer consider sea level rise data in making public policy. Wow. We've also seen um, some of the most restrictive attacks on uh, reproductive health, uh, including a requirement that any woman who's going to have an abortion has to have an ultrasound and the ultrasound has to be sent from her doctor to the State Department of Health and Human Services, which seems like a crazy invasion of privacy. Um, we've seen attacks on public schools and, and huge investment in vouchers uh, here. Um, we've seen... Uh, um, well, I think what people know North Carolina the the most for is we've seen House Bill 2, um, which, you know, was known as the bathroom bill because of the restrictions it put on limiting transgender people's access to um, the bathroom of their choice, uh, but was so much more than that. It, it repealed all local non-discrimination protections, uh, which in my community meant repealing non-discrimination protections for veterans as well as for pregnant and nursing mothers. It was literally the first time that any state repealed existing non-discrimination protections since the civil rights era. Uh, that's the type of regressive policies that have happened here. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about the legislature and we're going to come back to it, but, uh, you, you know, in terms of progress, you have a democratic governor, a democratic attorney general, and from what I understand, a, a democratic Supreme court, and the, the Republicans uh, could, could have reacted as gracious losers in, in some of those campaigns, but they chose a different path. So you want to walk us through a little bit of what's happened over the course of the last year and a half uh, in terms of the reaction to Democrats winning some races? Sure. I think that, it, you know, you can look at North Carolina and see that we're basically a few years ahead of what it needs to happen on the national scale with Democrats figuring out how to come back. And so after all this bad stuff started to happen, we started to get our act together. We started to get new, younger people who were engaged. Um, there was a lot of grassroots activism to push back. You may have heard about the Moral Mondays movement, the massive protest movement that started here in North Carolina and gave us a real clear moral language for what we're fighting for and aligned all of the progressive advocacy groups to be working together. So all that laid out the groundwork so that in 2014, we actually won back some legislative seats. And then in 2016, we won some more legislative seats back. We elected a Democratic governor and we flipped the Supreme Court. So we had progress in 2016 in all three branches of government in a year that everybody knows was a bad year for Democrats. So the, the Democratic revival has already started here in North Carolina, but the Republicans uh, after the Democratic governor was elected and after the Supreme Court uh, flipped, they the, the Republican legislature uh, went to work trying to protect their gains and to protect their powers. And so they immediately called a special session before the Democratic governor was sworn in and they stripped away a whole bunch of the governor's powers. They tried to take away the governor's control of the Board of Elections, um, which that was that law was actually just overturned uh, in court, thankfully. Uh, but they removed a whole bunch of the governor's powers for the ability to hire and appoint people to office, uh, to appoint people to some boards and commissions, um, university boards, things like that. Uh, they dramatically cut the governor's budget. They uh, dramatically cut the Democratic attorney general's budget. They've done just about everything they can for payback. And the most scary thing of all 
is that they have spent the whole year making our court system more partisan. And they are currently working on a plan to try and gerrymander our court maps to benefit themselves. And there's even a plan that's been floated um, that would remove the election of all judges in North Carolina. And I know there are some states that use various uh, approaches besides elections to put some judges on the bench. But here in North Carolina, we vote for all judges and the Republicans just seem intent on taking away control from the people um, probably because they've continued to lose in court on every issue that we've challenged them on, on uh, constitutional grounds. And so they're trying to take control of the court system. It's a real breach of the separation of powers and, uh, you know, the fundamental tenets of, of what makes us a democracy. And how do we stop them from doing that? Elections. I mean, it's the, we don't have the power to stop them through the legislature. And so we have had to educate our voters about gerrymandering, uh, about court rigging, about all kinds of things that are usually only the, the stuff that real political nerds follow. But here in North Carolina, there's a lot of people that understand what those things are. And we're going to have to use that to energize and mobilize voters in 2018. Um, if, if we're not able to break their supermajority power, they can keep on pressing with their radical anti-democratic. And so this is a really important point. So what you're saying is, and this could mirror the national debate, especially everything that's going on with Mueller and the FBI, is that you're saying um, the, the, the norms and the, the workings of democracy itself have to be a, an issue that we run elections on. I think so. I mean, I, I think we have to ask people what type of government do you want? Uh, not just what type of leader do you want, but what type of government do you want? What is the role of people? What what are the, the things that you consider to be uh, requirements for fundamentally fair elections, for a balanced system of governments, both balanced across branches of government and balanced between political parties? Uh, and, and, you know, this is stuff that our grassroots base already cares a lot about, particularly uh, if you come at it in the frame of the influence of money on policy and money on elections. Progressives are already fired up about that. But when, it, when you just stop talking about the influence of money and you actually talk about what the money is being used for, the way that it's being used to hurt public schools, to rig your court system, et cetera, et cetera, then people really understand that the system is getting increasingly rigged against them. Uh, and they don't like that. People um, who have honest disagreements about policy on how to address specific things um, find lots more agreement when it's just a question of, do you think that the system should get rigged in this way? People don't like it when the system is getting messed with. And so point us forward in 2018. Uh, what, what races are happening in 2018 in North Carolina um, and what are the stakes? Well, um, as I said, we don't have a gubernatorial race or a Senate race or anything that's a top of ticket statewide race. We do have one Supreme Court race um, that is statewide. But, you know, Supreme Court candidates don't usually drive voter turnout. And so our voter turnout is going to be focused on congressional and legislative elections. And what that means is that candidates who are running at those levels have to run amazing on-the-ground campaigns. You can't depend on a presidential campaign to come in and put a bunch of volunteers in your district. You have to get to know people. You have to engage them as volunteers. Uh, you have to use smart technology uh, and spend your, your campaign finances efficiently 
to try and figure out who are the voters that you can mobilize because uh, with turnout going to you know going to be down in a mid-year election cycle if you're able to mobilize your base get enthusiasm for your candidacy up uh, you you may be able to win um, just by getting people who voted for uh, President, well, I wish President Clinton and um, and and Governor Cooper in 2016. If you can just get them to come back to the polls in 2018, then you got the chance to win. Uh, presuming that some of the depressed Republicans stay home, so we're really excited about having legislative candidates all over the state, including in some areas that have been red for quite a while having the chance to win elections because they run great grassroots campaigns. And so what can people do to help who are not from North Carolina? You can certainly either volunteer or send money to help with efforts in North Carolina. Um, You know, there are definitely organizations that are uh, organizing events and organizing volunteers to help. So whether you're talking to uh, Sister District or Flippable, you know, the national organizations, uh, or you get connected with a specific campaign here, um, we're going to be using phone banking from all over the country to help with our campaign efforts. Uh, and you can always donate you know, either to the North Carolina Democratic Party or to a candidate of your choice. And Ravi, I hope that the arena is going to come help us. I mean, you guys had a summit here. We would love to have any arena alumni who want to figure out how to connect with, with people who are here. Uh, we, we, we can make sure that you can find candidates that share your values and that you would like to see in office and figure out how to, to get you to support. And them. so uh, that's great timing because a couple of things on that. Uh, and for folks who don't know, we did our second summit ever in Raleigh and it was a, a huge joy to see all the work that y'all are doing down there. One of the strongest progressive coalitions I've seen in the entire country, uh, stronger, sad to say than even uh, my native New York, where we have a two to one registration advantage here. Um, so kudos to you guys, but I'm actually coming to North Carolina next weekend. I'm going to Charlotte for two days to support a candidate down there. And, uh, this will be the beginning of what I hope will be a lot of trips this spring. And and we also just launched our fellowship and, um, for any candidates, you know, uh, who are running in North Carolina this cycle and who need help. Uh, this is what our fellowship is designed to do. And then we've got to figure out what our priority States are. And, you know, based on everything you said, you, you got a really strong case, uh, for investment, both in the arena and from everybody else listening uh, to come down to North Carolina, do everything they can. I think that, uh, or, you know, this state ha- has a great ethos that matches up with arena and the energy that so many uh, young arena activists bring is going to be welcomed here because we have uh, a very um, mobilized base of young people here. Um, a lot of creative thinking happening in politics in North Carolina uh, from young people who have gotten mobilized over the last couple of years. You know, didn't didn't take Trump here. It, it's been people getting engaged for a little bit. Which campaign are you going to support in Charlotte? You want to give him a shout Dan out? Dan McCready right? for Congress, who's got more cash on hand right. by a long shot than even the incumbent who's running. So he's he's doing what he needs to do to run a competitive race over there. Uh, and so shout out to Dan and his team. Yeah, and because of the partisan gerrymanders, we don't have a lot of highly flippable congressional districts here. But Dan's district is one of the ones that probably is flippable. And he has done a phenomenal job of building a very strong campaign. Um, and, and people should definitely check Dan McCready out. Great. Well, Greg, you are an inspiration to all of us. Thank you so much for joining us. And 
I hope to see you when I come out to North Carolina, either this time or the next time I get out there. That would be great, Robbie. We'd love to have you and anybody else who wants to come and help.